Welcome to Communication Mixdown. I'm Rima Rattan. Last year, the ABC's annual podcast survey found that the popularity of podcasts is rising among Australians, driven partly according to an article about the survey results, by the growing appetite among women for true crime tales. True crime, true crime podcasting is now one of the most popular long-form content in the world, taking off with, the, with two series from the United States, National Public Radio's 2014 show Serial, which explored the possible wrongful conviction of Adnan Syed for murder of his former girlfriend, Hei Min Lee, and sparked a true crime podcast renaissance, and Making a Murderer, a 10-part documentary series on Netflix that looked at the wrongful conviction of Stephen Avery and his nephew for another murder. Some of the recurring questions about this particular kind of show, whether there's, an ost- whether there's an ostensible miscarriage of justice involved, are whether they are voyeuristic, exploit tragedy for the sake of entertainment, and how the voices of victims are missing. These kinds of ethical tensions are what we're exploring today with Associate Professor of Philosophy at Deakin University, Patrick Stokes, and Dr. Gregory Stratton, who lectures at the Justice and Legal Department at RMIT and manages the Bridge of Hope Innocence Initiative, which aims to examine cases where a person may have been wrongfully convicted and assists in in exonerating that person if there is evidence of a wrongful conviction. He has also recently contributed a chapter titled Wrongful Conviction, Pop Culture and Achieving Justice in the Digital Age to the book Crime, Deviance and Popular Culture. I spoke to Patrick and Gregory in the 3CR studios earlier today. Patrick, you're working on a project that raised questions for you about representing people who have died through crime or misadventure. Could we start with you telling us a bit about that and some of the ethical dilemmas you faced? Sure. So I've just uh, finished recording um, a radio documentary for Radio National, uh, which hopefully will appear sort of middle of the year, uh, about a uh, story, you you may well have heard the story before, it's uh, about a guy who in 1978, so it was last year was the 40th anniversary, um, disappeared while on a flight between Moorabbin and King Island. And the reason that this has sort of um, remained a, a well-known story is that as he was, um, the last thing he radioed in was that he was being harassed by some sort of mysterious flying craft that was flying around him. And then he just completely vanished. And um, there was never found any trace of the aircraft except possibly one piece that washed up five years later. We only found out about that recently. So, And this is a story I've actually been a little bit obsessed with kind of since I was a kid. Um, like I remember because it happened in my part of the world. I was born the year it happened. And um, you know, I, was, I was quite sort of obsessed with it as a kid. And then um, became much more sceptical as I became an adult, but still was really fascinated by this story. And now as, as an academic philosopher, I'm fascinated by the way in which um, the narrative aspect of it um, splinters in this interesting sort of way. So depending on who's telling the story, you get a totally different sense of who Frederick Valentich, the guy who disappeared, who he was and what was going on. And so the story never kind of resolves. It just fragments into these totally different tellings that give you this totally different understanding of 
of who the guy was. So I, I got the opportunity to sort of pitch to the ABC and say, I want to do a, a piece on this for the 40th anniversary. And I got to speak to some people who were very closely involved in the case. Uh, Steve Roby, who was the air traffic controller who was speaking to Fred when he disappeared. Um, his fiance Rhonda Rushton, I got to... to um, learn some things from her. So this was really fa- fantastic and interesting sort of stuff. But I couldn't get in touch with the Valentich family. I just couldn't um, manage to get in contact. And there's this concern that I've had the whole way through, which is I want to tell this story because I think it's a fascinating story. It's become a, a, an interesting part of Australian folklore. It says interesting things about Australian society, about 20th century um, belief systems, if you like, around UFOs and the way the UFO mythos developed. Um, It's just an intrinsically fascinating mystery on its face. Uh, But at the same time, a guy died, or probably died, uh, and we just don't know. And and you are actually kind of sticking your fingers into real people's Mm. trauma, and, and that does open some really kind of serious ethical questions about, um, you know, where is the line between trying to find an interesting and illuminating way to retell a story and simply exploiting somebody else's tragedy? Mm. The the missing voice of the victim of crime is something that all such shows clearly need to balance. According to a recent ABC article in response to two recent Netflix projects about serial killer Ted Bundy, Serial's co-creator Julie Snyder told the podcast Longform that she really wanted to be respectful to the family of Heyman Lee, who's for whose murder Adnan Sayed was convicted. And the podcast did that by not talking about her very much because doing so would be like assuming they really knew her, she said, and that pretending in some way that we should remember who the real victim was felt, she said, like a hack and false move. Gregor, how does a project like the Bridge of Hope Innocence Initiative deal with such concerns? Uh, so probably the first thing is that we we don't go to the media in the first instance to deal with our cases. What we do is we allow media or people who are interested in investigating uh, sort of the true crime element of the of the cases we have to come to us. And then in dealing with that uh, with those people or journalists, we'll uh, direct them off uh, to the cases that we think are useful or, or might help our applicants in dealing with the victims in that in that sense. Our project, so our, stu- our project is student-run, student-driven. So uh, they look at applications from people who are in prison or have been released from prison who believe they they're innocent. Uh, and we have a really strict criteria about the types of cases we'll take. And one of the, one of the main criteria about the cases we'll look at and investigate is that we won't have any contact with victims for for similar reasons that we've just talked about. Is that we don't want to re-traumatize families. We don't want to re-traumatize victims in going through. The, the, uh, the experiences uh, that they might have uh, gone through with that crime. Um, so to, to address that concern, we sort of distance ourselves in the same way that uh, podcasts and, and some documentaries have with the victims. Another criticism of true crime podcasts is that they exploit tragedy for entertainment. Although your show isn't technically a true crime podcast, Pat, is this something you wrestled with your own project? And and how did you deal with that? Uh, I'm not entirely sure that I did. I I, I think I'm still working through that. Um, I I don't think I'm done with the story either. I think I want to keep working on it in some way. But uh, it's, it's a really tricky thing because, of course, I think everyone who puts together anything like a true crime podcast or anything in that genre 
probably has it in their head that they can actually somehow uh, right past wrongs or, or illuminate the past in a way that perhaps helps um, victims, even if the victim's dead, that, that you know gives them some kind of posthumous justice or justification. You know, everyone wants to be the next teacher's pet sort of producer, you know, and produce something that does actually change the way um, these these things play out, uh, or even just wants to tell a story in a way that does justice to to, um, to victims in the past. Like there was, there's a um, really interesting podcast at the moment talking about. Um, Frederick Deeming, the early um, early 20th century Melbourne-based serial killer and, and, um, and again, does really good things in terms of, of helping the victims. But there is an interesting question of at some point, are you actually just trying to produce a kind of um, a, a kind of entertainment and in so doing, are you actually doing a kind of a disservice to the victim and also to the people who are involved in that? And in the show that I've done, there's an interesting sort of meta level to that, which is that not only were some of the people I was talking to traumatised by the event, they were also doubly traumatised by the media circus that happened on top of that and the way they were treated. And I got in touch with a guy um, called Robert Alcock who produced a documentary on the Valentich case in the late 80s for SBS. And I got in touch with him and he's like, and I said, yeah, we're doing a story on this for the 40th anniversary. And he's like, yeah, I won't go into the details of a private conversation too much. But he's like, he did make the point to me that the reason he'd done his piece in 88 or 89 was precisely to point out that the media should just leave these people alone and that it was actually kind of um, potentially exploiting them by keeping their story alive in a very particular kind of way. Now, I feel like the people that I've spoken to are people who have spoken to the media many times and who are quite happy to talk about this stuff. Um, But at the same time, you know, I'm conscious that for everyone I did speak to, there might be a whole bunch of other people who aren't prepared to speak and who potentially are are, are subject to some kind of harm by this coming up in the way it does. So I guess in the end, all you can really do is if you're going to do it, do it in the most sensitive way you possibly can. And you know, think about almost uh, imagine that you're sitting directly opposite the people who um, were directly affected by this and could, could you could you say it to their face could you discuss this stuff to their face in the way that you would do it to the public as a sort of faceless amorphous entity mm. Greg you mentioned exploitation for um, exploiting tragedy for entertainment in your in your chapter as well um, what are your thoughts on on how it's usually done in true crime podcasting uh, it depends on the on the way and the, and the, the issue, I suppose. So obviously with the Innocence Initiative, we're coming at it from a perspective of uh, potentially there's a right to be, uh, a wrong to be right, I should say. Whereas potentially something like the, the Bundy series is interesting in particular because, yeah, you might be getting something out of it of getting to understand or know or, or what uh, serial killers might expect. But in doing so, you're exploiting 30, 40 victims and their voices and their family in exposing that case again. So in terms of true crime, I see true crime as being either exploitive of the crime or potentially seeking justice. And seeking justice can be for murders that haven't been solved or murders and other crimes that maybe the wrong person is in prison. So coming from the perspective that we do with our cases, we're usually approaching those cases as... or. or the, the podcasts and TV series that we've been involved in as potentially that there's other victims out there and that those victims are our applicants, that they're in prison for a crime they didn't do, that uh, the justice system is harming them in some way because of, of the, the wrong that's been committed in that way. Um, the other side of that is 
sort of recognising the tangibility of the case, that sometimes there's things that get exposed in uh, presenting that to the public that create public awareness and public attachment to, to issues. So I just used Exposed as an example. So Kelly Lane's TV series is, is an example of that Exposed that was on the ABC last year. It's a case that we've been working on for a couple of years now. And by creating uh, some public awareness around that, we've been able to get some tangibility, some traction with uh, forcing an invest or us forcing investigation a bit further and, and trying to find some of the open ends to that case that we wouldn't have necessarily been able to do without uh, that public awareness, I suppose. Well, it, it's interesting you brought up the Ten, Ten Bundy um, stories in particular. One of the things I read was one of the mothers saying, uh, mothers of her, he's one of his victims saying, you know, everyone knows Ted Bundy's name, but nobody, nobody knows any of the women he murdered, um, which, which. It's, it's quite quite an awful thing and, and clearly much more exploitative or much more clearly exploitative in this instance. Celebrate International Women's Day with 3CR. On Friday the 8th of March, we'll bring you 24 hours of non-stop radio by, for and about women. Join 3CR's fabulous women and genderqueer broadcasters as we talk with talented Melbourne musicians, songwriters, storytellers and activists making a difference. Featuring a special live broadcast from the 2019 International Women's Day Rally at the State Library between 5.30 and 6.30pm. For the full day's program, visit our website at 3cr.org.au. International Women's Day 24-hour broadcast... Friday the 8th of March 2019. Tune in at 855am, 3CR Digital and streaming at 3cr.org.au. You're with Communication Mixdown and this week we're talking to Associate Professor of Philosophy at Deakin University, Patrick Stokes, and Dr. Gregory Stratton, who lectures in the Justice and Legal Department at RMIT about the ethics of true crime podcasting. Now, one of the things that you write in your book chapter, Wrongful Conviction, Pop Culture and Achieving Justice in the Digital Age, Greg, is, is how in the aftermath of another very successful documentary, Making a Murderer, the prosecutor from the original case, Ken Kratz, experienced vigilantism from fans, death threats, and um, an orchestrated campaign to try to subvert his career by giving his legal practice low ratings online. Putting aside the fact that it was not the police who, was a, who attracted this kind of attention, but the prosecutor, what do you think the producers and listeners of True Crime Podcasts owe people whose lives have been disrupted by the making of the show itself? I think that Ken Kratz is a good example because I think what happens for a lot of people is the the distance that you have as a as an audience member or as a, a person uh, consuming podcasts and, and real crime sort of distances themselves. And what I mean by the, the tangibility is is that we forget that we're in the real world. We forget that this isn't actually just entertainment. This is people's real lives. These are real victims. These are real uh, crimes that are occurring, and the the celebrity the celebrity or the celebritification of some key elements of, the, of these cases can be uh, have a, a, an impact on normal people's lives. So in, in Making a Murder, it's not only Ken Kratz who has sort of been put through the ringer a bit and 
partly his practices have been exposed, but on the other side as well as the um, defence team, both in the new, uh, most recent series with uh, the Wisconsin uh, Innocence Project team, but also the original team with uh, the uh, represented Stephen Avery, they've become celebrity lawyers, which has been able to push the idea of innocence and the innocence movement around the world. And then on the sort of the negative side is some of the police officers and the prosecutors that have again been attacked and lost jobs or at least been put in publicly a a pretty difficult position of having to defend themselves and, and like you said, losing jobs, uh, losing uh, public credence, I suppose, in terms of their cases. And again, we, it's something we're really conscious of, of how we deal with our cases and, and, and thinking about, again, we don't, do we necessarily want to bring our applicants into, into the limelight and have it, not only themselves, their families, their lawyers uh, put through that, that public uh, ringer, I suppose. And that's partly why in terms of dealing with, with these cases, we don't want to drag anyone through that sort of experience without them being at least aware of that. And trying to balance that is really difficult because, yeah, having the media and having the media exposure in some of these cases is actually really important. So Kelly's case, we're looking for a missing person. We're looking for a missing uh, a girl, hopefully. And that we need the public to come forward to us to say that there's something not right there. But on the other side of that, Kelly gets exposed to media scrutiny again and has to go through that. And her family and her daughter have to go through that. So... It's a really difficult question to, to balance, I suppose. You mentioned, Pat, that um, you spoke to um, Fred's fiance and um, but didn't manage to get with, in touch with the family. What, what were some of the other people? Who were some of the other people you came in contact with? Yeah, so uh, I went along to an event that was held by the by Victorian UFO Action or UFOA, which is a UFO research group. Um, and they were having this big 40th anniversary event uh, where people associated with the case were going to be. And so I said, look, can I come along and and record some audio for this program? And they were understandably um, a little concerned that they said when they've interacted with the media before, uh, the media has just made them look silly. And... uh, and, and they're not silly. And talking to them, they were you know, very interesting, level-headed people who actually had some really interesting things to say about it, who were quite sceptical about some things. Uh, and, and I really enjoyed, actually, the opportunity to talk to these people. But I can totally understand how it would be that um, that could come through the filter wrong, if you like, or that could come out in a way that makes them look foolish or whatever, if, if somebody wants to push a particular line or a particular story. So, so I get that. I get that everyone, even people who really want a story to be better known or want it to be better discussed, um, can have a totally justified worry about how that story is, is going to be um, presented or amplified or what kind of... Any, any telling is going to inevitably... Um, whether you want it to or not, it's going to try and it's going to end up pushing some particular account of events. Something I've worked very hard not to do in the program I've done of trying to present these different narratives alongside each other. But I'm sure somebody could step back from it and go, "No, you are actually pushing a particular line, even if I think I'm not." And I don't think I am. I genuinely don't know what happened to him. Um, there is that risk there, and again, people can easily get kind of ploughed under through through that process and again you, you've, you've got to think about your responsibility to all of those people that you know they're they're taking a risk talking to you they're taking a risk 
sticking their neck out and, and um, you know, putting their lives on display in some tiny way, and, and that, that creates a, a responsibility. Yeah, it, it seems like um, the producers of these kinds of shows have quite a lot of responsibility to almost to everyone. In the Kelly Lane show, um, Greg, on ABC, uh, someone ended up losing their job as a result of that show, if you recall. Uh, I'm just trying to think who it was. Not through the... Oh, yeah. Um, that was because of something he said in an interview about... Uh, I'm just trying to remember what he said. But he, he said something that was... She was a danger directly. to men. Yeah, which got... He was a representative for White Dove Foundation. White Ribbon. Um, White Ribbon, sorry. White Dove is Bridge of Hope. White Ribbon Foundation. And obviously that goes against a lot of... The, the ethos of White Ribbon Foundation and yeah, it, it, it's enacting in that way that you don't necessarily see the, the blowback that you can get from uh, how you come across what, what you're representing that really exposes people in, in, in different ways and, and that's again like we're saying is it can go either way for either side of these sort of cases so um, while it might look like that something like serial or making a murder is advocating for a wrongful conviction or someone who's been wrongfully convicted, it can very quickly go, the grain can go against them. And I've had experiences in, in WA with people that, and having spoken with people in West Australia about some documentaries that were made about wrongful conviction where it went the wrong way for them. The, the, public, the, the public sympathy they thought they were going to get in response to being part of a documentary or being part of a, a, a podcast series series actually went the other way and they felt like the public antagonised the public and that their story of that something went wrong wasn't actually accepted uh, by people. Hmm. I guess the, there's also the trauma that Kelly had to suffer from from, from the implication that she was a danger to, to young men that, that, um, that the White Ribbon ambassador said. Yeah, and, and she's obviously had what it, so she's probably had 15 years of this sort of experience though with the media and, and, and all the different types of framing that, and again, particularly women face this in, in terms of media representations of uh, murderers is that she's pr pretty well versed, I suppose, in seeing those different sides of the media and recognising that, yeah, it'll play one way one week and one way another way. I've been talking to Associate Professor of Philosophy at Deakin University, Patrick Stokes, and Dr. Gregory Stratton, who lectures in the Justice and Legal Department at RMIT and manages the Bridge of Hope Innocence Initi Initiative, which aims to examine cases where a person may have been wrongfully convicted and assist in exonerating that person if there's evidence of a wrongful conviction. We'll be putting this program as a podcast on the Communication Mixdown website in the next week or so. That's it for the show tonight. Um, we're here again next week, and look f we look forward to you joining us then.